0: Thank you. I am so excited to be here as the product of 13 years of Yeshiva Jewish Day School education. I don't get all opportunities to be in a gorgeous church, so this is very, very special for me. I'm a little intimidated. Um, But yes, I am a journalist who's been covering uh, the health and wellness industry for the last eight years. I used to cover it full time for Fast Company magazine. Now I write for the New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, and other publications. And I wrote a book this year about what I saw as almost, I would say, the religious treatment of wellness, the pursuit of health. And there are a lot of issues within the health and wellness industry, and I wanted to answer the question, why is everyone suddenly obsessed with their health? Why is this era different than all other eras? And more than anything, why were women more than men? becoming so, I would say, almost obsessed with it? And how is America different than all other countries? Because you don't see this phenomenon replicated in other countries as much as ours. Um, So I'm just gonna start with a little oversight. Um, For example, I will say that the wellness industry is huge. It is a $4.4 trillion global industry, but America, with its 350 million people, constitutes almost 20% of that economy at 1.2 trillion. I'm sure you guys know tons of people who take a supplement. In fact, 75% of Americans do. Boutique studios are showing up on every corner. I'm sure you live in a place where suddenly every few months there's a new Pilates studio or yoga studio. Things like organic food, which maybe, you know, used to be kind of considered niche, you know, maybe it was something that your cousin did, or like your your hippie aunt did, suddenly everyone's buying it. It's not just in Whole Foods, it's in an average supermarket. Two-thirds of American women buy athleisure wear more than any other category of clothing. If wellness uh, let's just say meditation um, or organic food used to be considered counterculture or niche, it is now the culture. A third of Americans now do yoga, and meditation companies are now billion dollar companies. Suddenly you're seeing that nightclubs are serving green juice. Um, IV, service, IV uh, wellness services are waitlisting customers. It used to be that when people retired, they wanted a golf course. Not anymore. Now they're building retirement communities that make sure that they have yoga studios and a self-care center and massages and a spa. That's where all the millennials are going to retire when they finally retire. Um, so it's become something that is his own culture. And I kind of wanted to understand a little bit why. Because again, it wasn't suddenly your aunt in Venice Beach who was into bone broth. Suddenly, your coworker was talking about it. Your best friend was talking about it. Sometimes it was your mom. Suddenly, all of American women were replacing milk with soaked, bland almond water. Why is that? And also, how did this happen? Um, Again, I went to 13 years of yeshiva education. I grew up modern orthodox. That meant I kept the Sabbath, kosher. I wore skirts and dresses my whole life. Um, I very much love my faith. Um, I even went to seminary in Jerusalem and studied um, Jewish philosophy for a year. I went to Yeshiva University here in New York City. But fast forward 10 years, and my entire life revolved around wellness. I spent hundreds of dollars a month, and i just like to say I'm a journalist. We're not rich. (laughs) But wellness dictated where I ate, what vacations I took, what people I hung out with. I was obsessed with what I ate. I had a cabinet that was full of clean beauty. I only ate organic. I made sure that I had natural wine when I went out to have a drink. I even peppered my dog food, my dog's dog food, not mine, my dog's food with bone broth. It was on sale, but still, why all of this? You know, Why was this happening? And I'll tell you why. Because when you looked at me, and just so you guys know, yes, I refused to buy a photo of my own self. (laughs) Sorry for the trademark. But um, why was I so obsessed? Because, you know, technically I was a healthy person, right? I had no chronic conditions, I got a clean bill of health every time I went to the doctor. So why all this stuff? Why was I going every morning to the gym and punishing myself if I didn't do it? Why was I obsessed that everything was clean and non-toxic? And that's because I felt like this. I felt that modern life had become chaotic. Too much felt out of control. A poorly constructed medical system, tech overload, a tumultuous news cycle, lack of community, you name it. And I wasn't the only one who felt this way. A lot of people felt this way. A lot of people felt like our lives demanded too much of us. That things had just become out of control. And what did wellness promise? Solutions, salvation. Any problem you had, they had a solution. Are you too tired? You should try this supplement. You don't have enough energy? You need this CBD gummy. Are you stressed? You need to download this meditation app. Any issue, not only did they promise you the solution, but they promised you something that was almost aspirational. It became sort of this thing, unfortunately the goalposts kept changing, where you could be zen, you could be perfect, we promise you won't get cancer, we promise that you'll feel good. And gosh, that's really awfully tempting, right? Everyone wants to buy a solution. More than anything, it promised control. All the things that felt unmanageable in my life, um, you know, my boss pinging me at all hours. I mean, it used to be in America that when you finish the workday, you just finish the workday But now they can email you, they can ping you, they can text you at all hours. It just felt out of control. And here was something, here was a system that told me that I'd be back in the driver's seat. In my book, I talk about the fact that wellness is sort of inspiring a religious fervor. And I don't say that wellness is a religion. That would obviously be pushing the comparison. But I make the case that it's almost like a deconstructed religion in the sense that it's a regulatory system telling us how to move through our lives, telling us what to do. It's almost as if it's cementing a new moral order. It offers community, identity, purpose, meaning. These were all the things that religion used to give to us. That's what I used to get from Orthodox Judaism, but suddenly I replaced it with gyms and spas and apps and all these things that I needed. A lot of it has to do with the fact that it's built into this philosophy of that if you work hard enough, you can overcome sickness, aging, anything that stands in your way, right, yielding back that control. The body is almost something that you need to conquer, to mold into something that's greater. You know, it's almost as if your bodies are weak and imperfect and they're keeping us back, both perseverance and labor, you know, kind of that good old Puritan work ethic, you know, you can change your destiny. So, eating right or working out are imbued with this sacred meaning because they all funnel into this bigger plan where you're promised a sort of salvation that's a life free of stress, aging, whatever it is. And true believers, the hardest working of us, can gain entrance into this Eden of perfection. Um, And a lot of this has to do with belief, right? And a lot of this has to do with how America's primed for this. We are a highly optimistic country. We are the people who ventured out west and secured our golden fortunes, right? We built Hollywood, a dream factory. We have always been able to make a sort of magic because we're hard workers, but we're also highly optimistic. But the flip side of optimism is gullibility. And so a lot of the wellness industry, because it's just flooded with pseudoscience, which I won't get into, that's part of the book, but a lot of it is because it's based on belief. Take something like CBD, right, where you're not really sure if it works. And that's actually what makes it such a powerful, powerful product. Because you buy it, and you're like, is this working? Is this not working? Well, I don't know. All the advertisements say it's working, and I did spend $40 on it. And so it basically turns on your belief mechanism. This is why sometimes, and I'm not talking about necessarily CBD, when you want to convince someone out of something that's pseudoscientific, It's not based on facts or science. It's based on psychology. You oftentimes can't convince them out of it because it's based on belief and they want to believe in it. Wellness even has its own rituals. I mean, there used to be a time where you'd wake up in the morning and maybe you'd say your prayers, but no, now you got a gratitude journal. It could be, you know, picking up a green juice on the way to. The yoga studio, there are all these different ways that we've actually instituted rituals for people. And they're very important to them. I'm not knocking them. I think rituals are very important to people. But a lot of the things that we used to depend on for organized religion have been sort of replaced with all these other things. And usually they're things that require a purchase. It even has its own laws and commandments. Um, People now follow laws dictating what they can and cannot consume. You know, they should have organic, but they're not supposed to have anything with quote-unquote chemicals, even though even water is made of chemicals. Um, Nature is armed with godlike powers, uh, which assumes sickness is thereby attributed to anything that's unnatural and synthetic, which is kind of crazy because that ignores everything like, oh, earthquakes arsenic, poisonous mushrooms. I mean sometimes you read the copy on these products and it's like trust in nature. Um, It has a plan or nature has your back. You could almost replace the word nature with God and it'll work in the same exact divine principle. It even has some of the same sins like gluttony, sloth, and self-denials usually around food. And what are people rewarded with, besides supposedly salvation? Belonging, usually through a respected identity or community. Oftentimes, I I live in Los Angeles, which is like ground zero for wellness. I'll oftentimes go to brunch and I'll see women and they're all dressed the same, like they came out of a Lululemon factory. And you'll see some of them approach someone at another table or in line at a coffee shop, and they'll be like, oh, my God, I love your sports bra. And they'll just start talking, and they'll be like, what meditation app do you use? And they'll all just start talking because the way they dress signals to another person, I'm one of you. I'm part of your tribe. In many ways, it is no different than a Harley-Davidson motorcycle gang, right? They all dress the same, and you see someone, you're like, oh, hey, we're part of the same group. But it's even more than that because it offers a respected identity. This book took me over seven years and speaking to hundreds of women across the country. And a lot of them, because they were speaking off the record and I wasn't using the real name, would tell me things like, well, no one would respect someone like me. I'm just a white girl. I'm just a white woman, right? I'm a Karen. But when I go to brunch and I, you know, I'm sweating and I'm like, oh, I just came from a cardio class, people are like, you're so great, you're so good. I wish I could do that. It's a way to say I'm working on myself, right? In America, we love people who are working and that includes self-improvement. And what you have is a lot of these wellness institutions and companies that are actually purposely trying to model themselves after organized religion. And so you speak to founders of companies like SoulCycle, Peloton, and they will adamantly just outright say, we look to religion, we study churches, we study synagogues, what works for them can work for us. Um, I believe actually the Peloton founder a couple years ago at a tech conference said that he was purposely trying to make a new religion and he said something like, when people buy our branded tank tops, it's no different than wearing a cross around your neck or a Star of David that's your identity, that's your community, that's who you are. Like, they're upfront about it. SoulCycle, for example, purposely manufactures closeness. They have these really, and I'm so sorry to all the people in here and men who have not been to a SoulCycle, but SoulCycle has these very, very small rooms where they purposely squish you in like sardines so you feel the closeness of someone else. So you're working sort of in a community of people, but you have your own individual bike in a way that they said almost feels like prayer in a church. More than that, they have very inspirational music, and these fitness instructors who are, you know, listing off all of these platitudes, and it feels super, super inspirational because... You're working so hard that you're, like, basically in a trance-like state, which rhythmic, repetitive, you know, motions can do that. And you have this amazing euphoric music, and it's almost like a spiritual experience for people where they suddenly feel outside of themselves, and they feel like they believe in the goodness of the world. This is how they kind of, I don't want to, I'm not knocking it. It's a great experience. I love Soul Cycle, But this is how people actually find something that, you know, Possibly you'd only either find at a religious experience or I don't know, an EDM festival. (laughs) And there's another thing. You know, SoulCycle, one of the reasons they did so well and they became such a huge company is that they would leave a lot of room in between classes. So usually if you go to a gym, there's like a 15 minute period where they get people out of a class and bring everyone else in. They were the opposite. They would spend 45 minutes in between classes, why? they wanted people to become close to the instructors. Now, it's no longer just Soul Cycle. More and more you hear Americans talk about the fact that they're emotionally depending on their wellness or, uh, let's say, even their massage therapist or on their fitness instructors. They go to them when they're going through a divorce, going through something that feels traumatic, a fight with their spouse. They're depending on them. And what sociologists have found is that a lot of these sort of wellness centers are filling in the gaps that were once served by organized religion and close-knit female communities if you rewind let's say 70 years ago you had a very very large family maybe you had four to five siblings not only that you had tons of cousins and aunts and uncles if you had a problem maybe you went to your next-door neighbor or maybe you went to someone in your family People don't have that anymore. The woman I interviewed across the country said, I don't have time to speak to anyone. My friends don't have time to speak to me when I have an issue. I either have to get a therapist or I have to go to my fitness instructor. What they were basically saying is we become so busy as more and more people have entered the labor force and as work has become longer because the American Workday is now longer than it was even 50 years ago, people don't have time to be there for each other, right? So if you used to depend on your cousin to tell you to dump your dumb boyfriend, now you're literally going to your fitness instructor. So often I hear people say, oh my best friend canceled dinner plans, I'm so relieved. They're not saying I don't want to see my friend. What they're saying is I'm so tired that I'm actually relieved that I can't see my friends. So we've become more and more sort of nuclear, more and more cut off from each other. And so these people are essentially serving as our pastors. Now I know what you're going to say. I really think you're shoving the comparison. It really can't be that people are depending on their gyms to be where they get purpose, community, and identity. But they say it themselves. This is a recent poll by Morning Consult and Vox where when they asked people where they got purpose, community, and identity more than a political meetup, more than a book club, more than the local bar, they said an exercise class. And what's fascinating is that the wellness industry has become so good at essentially aping organized religion that I wrote a piece for the New York Times about how organized religion is now trying to steal back from the wellness industry. (laughs) Basically, what I found for a piece I did uh, maybe about two years ago for the New York Times is that churches, mosques, and synagogues are now doing cardio-led pastor workouts. They are now doing Sabbath services over a hike. They have their own meditation apps now. Um, Even the Pope instituted his own wellness council. One of the hottest new uh, jobs that I heard about was basically um, religious wellness consultants, meaning if you're a church or a synagogue, these people will come in and say, we know how to get the millennials in. They want to move. Get them out of the pews, and you got to do this cardio class, you got to get this meditation service. I mean, it's almost like this circular, weird tradition now. Now, of course, it wouldn't be any uh, religious comparison without false idols. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, wellness has its own golden calves that are indoctrinating uh, mostly women with. Um, fear of medicine, pseudoscience, and a lot of productivity pressures that are essentially robbing them of time, energy, and money, right? Because unfortunately, one of the problems with wellness is that it's highly, highly consumerist uh, and individualistic. And the problem with that is that when it's all on you, because this is constantly talking about what you need to do to be zen enough, to be fit enough, to be healthy enough is that when you can't meet the mark for a number of reasons, maybe you don't have time, maybe you don't have money, maybe you have a chronic condition, it puts the onus and the blame on you. Those are just a top line of issues within this industry. I wrote a whole book about the issues um, within this industry. But of course, you know, the wellness industry is not just fitness and health and organic food. It also now encapsulates what people call new new age spirituality so more and more if especially if you go to a yoga studio suddenly they're selling you sage bundles and crystals Um, astrology is huge right now Um, and oftentimes when i interviewed um, people across the country different age groups who are into this they'll talk about the fact that they love their crystals and they love their you know um, Astrology, because it gives them a time to reflect on their innermost needs, to really you know divorce themselves from all the chaos of life, and just be more spiritual. And if it's not crystals and astrology, the new biggest hottest thing is manifestation. Uh, manifestation gurus are huge right now, especially on Instagram and TikTok. Um, If any of you guys remember the secret from 15 years ago popularized by Oprah, it is the law of attraction. This idea of putting good energy out into the world, coupled with hard work, can bring you anything that you want, provided the universe wants you to have it. It's almost kind of a foolproof system. Um, If you get what you wanted, it was meant to be. If you didn't, you didn't work hard enough. Um, It's kind of like a (laughs) blame-proof philosophy, but oftentimes you find these manifestation gurus who look like fashion bloggers. They talk about the fact that you can manifest more money, um, your perfect career, uh, that ideal house. Oftentimes it comes down to what I would call very material success or very, an American capitalist idea of success. Uh, Very rarely do I see these spiritual gurus talk about, oh, charity, intellectual study, giving back. That never seems to ever happen. But either way, when I was speaking to so many women across the country who told me they were into manifestation or crystals or the pursuit of health, you know, they were talking about the need for structure and guidance and meaning. And it just got me thinking, um, why not just turn to religion? This all sounds like organized religion. Why aren't you guys just sticking with what you were raised with? And what they told me was the big three just ain't cutting it anymore. Back in 1998, um, when we had 62% of Americans say that religion was very important to them, uh, in the last year, it's plummeted to 39%. Also taking a double-digit beating are having children and community involvement. Pollsters call these uh, stats dramatic and shocking. Um, I think it also is quite shocking that even in 1998, 70% of Americans belong to a house of worship. It's now down to 50%. These are dramatic de-escalations just within two to three decades. Pollsters have never seen anything like this before. Americans with no religious affiliation, which are called now nuns, N-O-N-E-S, very different than the other nuns, are the fastest growing religious demographic. And they are the most represented among highly educated and politically liberal women. According to a Pew Research survey, um, nuns among women rose 10 percentage points just in the last 10 years. And when I interviewed people, and I also of course interviewed um, religious sociologists, I asked them what was going on. And there are a couple of reasons for it, just top line. One, a lot of women feel like uh, they became disenchanted with organized religion uh, for political or personal reasons. So this could be body autonomy, maybe they have issues with what their church has said about, let's say, abortion or birth control, or they've been disenchanted because they've read of abuse scandals, or sometimes they feel like their religious denomination has been coupled more and more with a political affiliation, and that has turned them off. But many more, especially Gen Xers and Millennials, never really grew up with a strong faith to begin with. Christmas meant Santa and matching pajamas. Hanukkah meant maybe one night of candle lighting and an Adam Sandler song. Once a year, they show up to their house of worship. They don't know what's going on. You know, I obviously grew up in in, um, an Orthodox community, but in the Jewish faith, if you don't know Hebrew, it's really hard to follow. They don't know what's going on. It was never impressed upon them why this is important, why they should believe in it. They have such a thin theological education about their own faith. And more than that, they just feel like religion isn't as important because they found other alternatives that they think give them the same exact thing. So many people I spoke to say, I follow Oprah. I mean, you don't need religion, we've got Oprah. She tells us how to be moral, she tells us what to do, she tells us what to care about. I can do the same exact thing with these other substitutes. For all these reasons, and more I go into them in the book, it's kind of becoming I don't want to say fashionable, although I have seen, especially I live in L.A., you know, when I tell people I'm modern orthodox, people are like, but you tell them you're into crystals, and they're like, oh, that's awesome. Where are you getting yours? Like, that's the people's reaction to organized religion. (laughs) And um, so people are becoming more and more disenchanted with organized religion. But here's the interesting thing. They're not becoming atheists. Only 8% of Americans are atheists. So people are leaving organized religion, but they still want spirituality. More than 50% of Americans consider themselves spiritual, but they have no defined God or defined sort of theology. More than two-thirds of Americans think that some higher force or spiritual being went out of their way to reward them, but they want this kind of deconstructed thing. And I think, you know, I forget who was, but a famous religious sociologist said that America is too religious of a country. So even if you get rid of organized religion, something else is going to swoop in and take that place. We are too highly optimistic to be atheists. That's considered too negative. A real Debbie Downer. They want to believe in something, and that something could be you know, the pursuit of health, it could be crystals in astrology, it could also be nationalism, social justice, it could be a whole number of things. But something is going to take that place. So what we're finding, especially with millennials and Gen Z, is that they're taking, by the way, these are my amazing Photoshop skills <laughs> of like an eighth grader. Um, They're taking a kind of salad bar approach to spirituality, where they want like 10% Buddhism, they want some like cultural Judaism for good measure, they like some teachings of Jesus, they're kind of mixing and matching their own privatized idea of what religion can be. Um, Which I think is kind of interesting. And what I hear most, especially from, I would say, younger millennials and Gen Z is that what matters to them is that they chose it. There's something that feels more authentic to them, that they've constructed their own kind of theology that's like, again, there's like crystals and there's like Buddhism and there's all these different things in the pursuit of health. It's theirs. They came up with this. And I think that really speaks to highly individualistic America is that we even need our religion to be something that... I came up with. And more and more, sociologists are also finding that basically our religious beliefs or our religious decisions are based on our feelings. People are saying things like, I want to feel nurtured and welcomed and loved. They really care about how they're feeling more than anything obligations, the other stuff, doesn't interest them as much. It's about what I want to feel. And, you know, I think it's kind of funny that um, the head of the Harvard chaplains, Greg Epstein, doesn't believe in God. He wrote a book called Good Without God. And he said to the New York Times, we don't need to look to God for answers. We just need to look to ourselves. And it's about, again, feeling really good about humanity. But what I found, um, and I experienced some of this myself, is that a lot of these are self-serving spiritualities, right? So, for example, privatized religion, this mixing and matching feel might feel more psychologically fulfilling, but it embodies less social capital. Um, The famous acclaimed social scientist Robert Putnam explained it well when he said that as people serve from practice to practice, they're less committed to any specific community or meaningfully involved over any sort of period of time because these denominations are really centered on the inwards versus the outwards. I mean, even think about it. Think about, like, being obsessed with your Peloton or clutching your crystals or writing in your gratitude journal. They're all done alone in the home in the privacy of your own self. Right? It always comes down to self-compassion, self-love, self-improvement, the self. And another Harvard Divinity fellow told me that a lot of times what he's finding with all these you know, younger individuals who are so excited about their salad bar is that when everyone has their own mix of practices that shapes them, he said, quote, it's very rare that you get a fullness of experience of community, because everything is somewhat itemized or bite-sized. I think that's what contributes to the sense of cosmic loneliness. The sense that nothing, nothing fits completely. Like something is always missing. And I think if you even think about this logically, like if I'm 5% Buddhist, but 10% Jewish, but 70% crystals, what is the likelihood someone's gonna have that exact same tradition? Very rare, right? And for all of these things that are basically done home, alone, it basically means that you're not involved with other people, right? There are no crystal churches, you know? There are, there, are, there are no things for these people to be part of a community. More than that, they're always reflected on inwards, what I need to feel good. So it's never about being part of a communal experience. It's never about giving back to people. Like I said, I never see them talk about going and volunteering or what to give to the future, or what to give to your neighborhood. It's not about that. And so what you're actually seeing is that, or even in the case of manifestation, which I'm sometimes very critical of, all of their idea of spirituality is oftentimes revolved around success, America's idea of success. You know, people turn to religion because they find that there's meaning and purpose that's lacking in their life, and then they turn to these self-serving spiritualities in an almost circular sense of, like, then just basically putting pressure on the things that they're trying to run away from. If you belong to a theology that's all about, like, here's how to get that next career, here's how to get more money, here's how to—well, that's going to leave you pretty depressed if you don't get it, but also, isn't that kind of what you're running away from? I had my own sort of breaking point um, a couple years ago when my father passed away. And because my family is Orthodox, we subscribe to the Jewish ritual of Shiva, which is a seven day mourning protocol. And we followed all of the rituals to a T. So that means as soon as we heard that my father died, we ripped a piece of our garment, um, which is meant to signify the tear in our heart. And you wear that for an entire week. Whatever clothing you hear the news in, You tear and you wear that for the entire week. You are then restricted to your home for seven days where the entire community comes for the entire day. I'm talking from 7 a.m. till midnight. There are people in your home making sure that you don't feel alone. And they take care of everything for you, bringing you food, bringing you drinks, anything you might need. More than that, you're supposed to cover up all of the mirrors in your home. And you're not supposed to wear any cosmetics to sort to prove this is a week where we are not caring about how we look or how we present. We are just being taken care of. At the end of seven days, it is the custom that you leave your house and you walk around your building to signify I am re-entering society. There is a place for mourning, but we need to also move on. On paper, or even when I'm describing them, they might sound a little loony, but they're actually really, really powerful. And when I went through them, I just realized, oh my God, this is the structure that I'm missing. I think like going to what, getting a massage or going to the fitness studio, all this stuff, that's meaningful. There was nothing that my gym or the wellness industry could have provided me during a moment like this. They can't provide anything for milestones like this. The birth of a child, the death of a family member. They, unlike organized religion, have not had centuries to perfect themselves. You know, oftentimes you'll see all this advertising for gyms that they talk about, we'll be your tribe, we'll be your community, we'll be your church. Good luck going to SoulCycle and telling them, hey, I lost my job, but you're my church, right? I can still come? It's not gonna happen. What if you get an injury? I spoke to so many women who told me, oh my God, my, you know, my gym was my church, my gym was my life, and then I got pregnant and they kicked me out in my third trimester. There went my community. It's not the same and it's not equivalent. Not to mention the fact that all of this is sort of based on the fact that you're supposed to have this elevated idea of like you're going to be free of sickness, aging, stress. I mean, your body will eventually betray you. This idea that it's all based around control, you cannot control everything. People get sick and they didn't do anything wrong. And I think it's also a bit infantilizing to the fact that we're constantly told it's all on us. Again. No communal sort of ties. It's all on you to sort of deal with everything. If you think you are stressed because you are not doing enough yoga, you've got to twist it. People are stressed because maybe there's not enough maternity benefits in this country. There's not enough child care policies. We have a really screwed up medical system. But instead we tell people, no, it's on you. You need to fix it. And it's really no different than like, let's say, workplace wellness programs, right? Where you go to your, your, your HR and you're like, this is too much work, I can't handle it. And they're like, but have you tried meditation? They put the onus back on you. These are just some of the issues that I found. But I think community, social support, has been utterly ignored by the wellness industry. And so people who are looking to it to be their next sort of spirituality will really find themselves lacking which is how we found ourselves for this piece I wrote last month for the LA Times, that the SoulCycle founders found a new business idea. They are now selling community. So imagine AA without the addiction. They now have group support that they're selling. You can spend $30 for each session to feel like you're part of a community. And it's kind of funny, because you could say sort of that hypercapitalism made us lonely, and now they're trying to sell us the solution. I think if you speak to a lot of people who, and by the way, I often get criticized where people are like, Rune Raphael thinks we should all join a church. And I'm like, I mean, I'm not saying that exactly, but you need to find something that actually works. And this pursuit of health as a replacement is not working because now you find all these people saying, okay, I got my body under control. Now I need to go and pay for a community. The wellness industry will continue to grow because, listen, some of these are legitimate complaints. People feel like they're tied to a desk chair, they want some movement, some people feel like if you're a child of the 80s, you grew up with too many fruit roll-ups, and now you feel like you want a healthier lifestyle for you and your children. I get it. There are legitimate complaints in this country. In my book, I go into why women are so drawn to the wellness industry for a multitude of reasons that I didn't get into today. But I think this also speaks to the fact that people are really seeking guidance, meaning, identity. All the things that are a lot harder, especially identity, I mean, if you get rid of religious orthodoxy or even strict gender roles, are really, really hard for people to find right now. And I think sometimes about, um, you know, Oprah, who once gave this commencement speech at Stanford, where she implored the audience, you must have a spiritual practice you have to find one. What's yours? And I think about this all the time because this is basically like a very difficult existential homework assignment for most people. Like, how do you find fulfillment in the society? How do you find meaning? How do you define yourself? If you're not given a path and you have to basically stitch it together from your salad bar, it's really, really difficult. But also, how do you make sure you pick the right one that propels self-growth? How do you make sure you don't find first sharp? How do you make sure you don't you know, fall for a charlatan. How do you make sure it's not something that's basically self-serving? Leaving you basically where you started, which is unwell and lonely. There is a quote um, by David Fo- the author David Foster Wallace, the late David Foster Wallace. And he makes the claim that there's no such thing as atheism in the United States. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Obviously, these are all things we know. But I think it's really, really hard in our society to not get compelled by these things. And again, I was a seminary student who, again, if you saw me 10 years ago, was the ultimate goop junkie. Um, This is just sort of a splattering of some of my ideas from my book. Yes, I am going to pitch my book. <laughs> I am a journalist after all. But um, I'm so glad to be here with you. I feel like this is a company where I can be quite honest and not scared that people are going to come after me with pitchforks for pushing religion too hard. But I do um, <laughs> I do think that a lot of you know millennials, Gen Z, and Gen Xers are going through a crisis right now. And I think the best thing we can do is to try to be supportive and try to show them the beauty of what we found within our own faiths. And, um, and my last thing is, is that, and I'm sure you guys know it maybe from your own faith, but you can't control anything. And I think part of faith is also having some sort of radical acceptance.